Well, as you probably already noticed, I brought a weight up here with me. It's my Bible. And if you were here last week, you realize it's the same Bible that Mike Bongo had, which was the super giant print. And that's because, like Mike, age has caught up with me. I've done my best to outrun it, but unfortunately, it's faster than I am. And so as a result, I've had to get this. I did go to the eye doctor to let you know, and I did realize uh, the doctor said it's about that time, brother. And so my glasses are ordered, so at some point I'll probably go back to a regular Bible size uh, once I get adjusted to wearing glasses. So that'll be a change in my life. Well, if you have your Bibles, whether that's one of these larger prints or whether or not you have a phone that helps you get larger print without others noticing, <laughs> uh, you could turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And then, uh, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, it'll be very short today. We're only going to be looking at one verse in our time together, one verse in our time together today. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And it simply reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is the word of the Lord we're going to look at today. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time. Father, we thank you for the joy of laughter. It's a gift from you. We thank you for your spirit and your word. And Lord, we thank you that we have faith in your son. We know that this is not as a result of ourselves, but because of your mighty work. And so, Father, we ask you today that you would work that you would minister, that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, I'm human, and Lord, although I believe I have been gifted with your spirit, that I'm in relationship with you, I know that my heart can cling to and desire things it should not. And so I ask that you would keep it. And Lord, if there's any sin, because I'm not an all-knowing being, nor am I always cognizant of where I have erred, either through omission or commission, Lord. I ask that you who sees everything, who knows everything, and whom I am laid bare before, there is nothing about my life, inward or outward, that is hidden from you. That as I stand before your people today to, to be a servant, to speak on your behalf, that you would cleanse me from anything, Lord, that might stand in the way of me being a vessel, a tool in your hands, to bring edification to your people. May solely the inward motives of my heart, Lord, be to bring glory to you and to help your people so that their lives might go in the direction that you have for them. Father, also I ask, not only for myself, but for those who are gathered here with us online and with those who are present in this facility, that, Lord, you would search their hearts as well and if, Lord, there be anything in them that has gone unconfessed, unrecognized, would you pardon them as well so that your spirit might fully work in their hearts, ministering, removing anything in them so that they might be good soil on which the word is spread and that they may bring up a fruit of righteousness that will remain for your glory. We ask these things knowing that you are merciful and kind, and that you are present even right now, watching everything that is being done and said. We pray, Father, that we would do all for your glory and honor. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So one of the struggles that the church has faced down through the centuries is to try to remain a unified entity. As you know, the church has split many times over a variety of issues and has resulted in what we would think of today as one of the pictures I have in my office is, is of this multi-branch tree of church denominations. Now, one of the early and most important splits that happened in the church that I learned about uh, in church history was around something known as the Filioque Controversy. One Roman Catholic writer who worked on a committee to seek to resolve this issue explains it with these words. 
From 1999 until 2003, the North American Orthodox Catholic Consultation has focused its discussions on an issue that has been identified for more than 12 centuries as one of the root causes of division between our churches. Our divergent ways of conceiving and speaking about the origin of the Holy Spirit within the inner life of the triune God. Although both of our traditions profess the faith of Nicaea as the normative expression of our understanding of God and God's involvement in his creation, and take as the classical statement of that faith the revised version of the Nicene Creed associated with the First Council of Constantinople of 381, most Catholics and other Western Christians have used, since at least the late 6th century, a Latin version of that creed, which adds to its confession that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, the word filioque, which means, and from the Son. And so for over a thousand years ago, this topic of whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son as the Western church as whole was so hotly debated and not resolved that it led to a schism, a split within the church that formed what we now know today as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches one of the major splits in the life of the church. But we can understand what this is like, at least on a personal level, of how this can happen. When a husband and wife cannot find a way to come to agreement and unity in their marriage, when there is a type of disagreement, they sometimes split. We simply refer to that as divorce. Sometimes in families or in friendships, there are tensions that arise over various issues. And the friends or the relatives cannot resolve the tension or choose not to resolve the tension, and they end up splitting. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like the relatives or the friends, years go by, and there's no communication between the parties involved. Sometimes we see it in job environments when there is an employee, an employer who can't resolve whatever the issue is that's there and they cannot come to some resolution to bring peace and unity so the relationship can continue, they end up splitting. Sometimes we say they quit, they resigned, or they were terminated. I know it's hard to believe, but even in the first century, the, the church struggled to remain a unified entity. However, what Paul does in this letter is he offers to the church, and I would say not just to the church then, but also to the church now, the solution that will work to solve this dilemma. And so today we begin our journey through the well-known and much-beloved letter to the church in Rome, or simply as we refer to it often, Romans. As you most likely know, there is a vast amount of literature written on this book, over the years because of its role in theology. And so as a, as a member of the teaching team and on behalf of the teaching team, our prayer is that God would aid us in this endeavor because we have limited capacities. Uh, and there's more than can be read probably in a lifetime unless you spent your whole life just focusing on this one specific book. But our desire as a teaching team, knowing our capacities are limited, asking God to aid us, to help us, to present to you the best understanding that we can of what the Holy Spirit intended when he led Paul to write what we have today. So Pastor Mike has asked me as I open this series up to take some time to lay down or to, ex to explain the background of the letter. So I would like to take the first part of our message time together today to share some of those details with you to become the foundation by which uh, we understand and come to grapple with the things written as we think about this series and journey through Romans. We first must begin by making our way to the ancient city of Rome, around just on the other half, other side of the mid-first century. And Rome is no city of small stature. Rome was at that time the seat of power, wealth, and decision-making in the empire. 
It's similar to, but not the same as, kind of like what Washington, D.C. is for us today. It was the home of the emperor at that time who was ruling, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, or you just might refer to him as Nero for short. If estimates are correct, he most likely had just been, by the time Paul is writing, had only been ruling somewhere around about three years or so. Estimates of the city population range from as low as 250,000 to well over a million people who were living in the city of Rome at that time. And the Jewish population, there's a range there as well. Uh, out of this 250,000 to a million, they believe that the range of the amount of Jews in Rome at the time ranged somewhere from around 20,000 to around 50,000 individuals. New Testament scholar Craig Keener said this, the Jewish people lived together in several suburbs of the city, generally most in mostly ethnically separated or segregated neighborhoods. The majority remained in their original area, the Trans-Tiberium, across the Tiber from the city's center. Archaeology indicates that most Jews there were poor. Many, many probably worked at the Tiber's docks. Nevertheless, there were some who were well-to-do members. Now, by being a minority in a city, there's certain things that sometimes happen. And not only were they a minority, but they had some major distinctions from the rest of the culture. Perhaps had they assimilated in, they would have been more accepted, but because they kept these distinctions, cultural and religious, they were not looked upon with favor and often they suffered forms of prejudice from Romans and Greeks who saw them as a threat to their traditions and to their culture. And it is known that the Roman emperors didn't necessarily think well of the Jews. It's in the midst of this city of Rome that the church would ultimately live their lives, worship, work, and evangelize, similar to how we do today as we live in this greater region of Harrisburg. Now, when we get to chapter 16, we understand that Paul seems to know of at least five house churches that exist in Rome. There may have been many more than that, uh, but these are the five that at least he seems to indicate that he has awareness of, probably because he knows the people who are in those house churches, that he's come into relationships as they were away from that sitting. From what we have, it seems like most Christians, because they were poor, would live in what would be similar to what we would think of today in our version, but it's different than their version, of what we would call apartments. But where they would hold their gatherings would be in the homes of those who were well enough to do to afford a home. So they would hold their meetings there. Now, these are not large venues. Most likely, most of these homes, from at least from archaeology, seem to indicate that most of these house churches held no more than around 30 people, some less. And there may have been some larger houses that might have gotten up to about 50, but mostly around 30 or less people made up each house church. We also know from the names that were given in the list that there was some diversity in the congregation. There were both men and women present. They were from various socioeconomic statuses. There were many that were slaves. They were comprised of different ethnic backgrounds, as I mentioned, Jewish, Roman, and Greek. But at the time Paul writes Romans, it seems like at this point in the life of the church, there has been a shift, and it is mainly a Gentile congregation with a minority of Jews who make up the church of Rome. That brings us to the letter itself. It seems from the way that Paul writes this letter, and he's acquainted with, that there are some relational difficulties based on these cultural differences between the Gentiles, Romans and Greeks, and perhaps there were some others from other countries, uh, and Jewish members who made up this congregation. We believe this to be the case because of what Paul writes in some of these later chapters that we'll get to uh, probably sometime next year, or maybe at the end of next year or the year after next. Uh, in 14 and 15. And it seems that Paul is acquainted with more than just a cursory knowledge. He has some in-depth idea of what are the issues going on. It's most likely because he had known some of the believers who were part of this church. We see that in Acts as he becomes friends with, co-workers with these other believers known as Aquila and Priscilla. We also believe this in light of the case because although the church probably started off 
as mainly Jewish. So in, in light of the events that happened in Acts, the church was mainly a Jewish entity. And there, and there seems to have been early on some Gentiles that it was who were members of the synagogue who had faith in the Lord and Yahweh and were attending the synagogue called God fears that they were present as well. And it may have been a few of them. And then after the persecution, when people returned to their homes, that these Jews and probably a few God fears returned home to Rome and they became the foundation of what started the church. We really don't necessarily have any evidence that it was an apostle, but it may have simply been the idea that these who went back home carried their new faith in the Messiah that they had heard in Jerusalem while they were there on pilgrimage, that they came home and brought this faith with them. And that's how the church began in Rome. <clears throat> but what we find out when Paul writes this letter is that circumstances have changed since those years earlier when they had first gone back home. And when you come to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, we're informed that sometime in the prior emperor's rule, Claudius, he had kicked out the Jews from Rome. Uh, scholar Doug Moose says, quoting from a historical source, he gives this information as to what was the potential reason that Claudius, who probably didn't like Jews as it was, kicked them out. He says, an important event in the history of the Jews in Rome is mentioned by the Roman historian Suetonius. In his life of Claudius, he says that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Most scholars agree that Crestus is a corruption of the Greek Christos and that the reference is probably to the disputes within the Jewish community over the claims of Jesus to be the Christos, the Christ, or the Messiah. So it seems like when these new Jews, these Jews came back home with this faith in Jesus and there were Jews there, that probably what happened was as they were advocating that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation that not everyone believed that and that caused rioting and Claudius didn't like that and so he kicked them out. But when we read Romans chapter 16 verse 3 in light of Acts chapter 18, we discover that things have changed and some of those people who had been out and been kicked out, had, were allowed to return home, and it seems like that happened under Nero's rule because Claudius had gone on and moved from life to death. And it appears that by that time the church had grown in Gentile converts because the Jews were no longer present, or at least those who were Jewish Christians were no longer present, and the Gentiles had been still evangelizing and more Gentiles had come in. And because more Gentiles had come in and the Jews were not present for a number of years, more than likely the church shifted to Gentile preferences in the way they worshiped God. And now the Jews come back into town to find their church, but it's not exactly how they left it. And that seems to be the reason that there is disunity in Rome. And in response to that, Paul writes what is now his longest letter to detail God's relentless grace in his plan for, for the salvation of humanity and how Jews and Gentiles fit into that plan. He then went on to explain that based on God's mercies that we have all received in salvation through Christ should cause Christians to live out the truth they believe in the context of their relationships with other believers and the society at large. Paul's hope was that by having a unified church, they could help him in the mission that God had set him to do, that they could be a unified church and he could then come there and he could launch off from there and they could offer him support so that he could continue to spread the gospel west into Spain. And that's what he hoped to do. We also know that this letter is not solely written by Paul. Romans chapter 16 verse 22 tells us actually it is Tertius who wrote the letter. And that is because this letter is maybe different than some of Paul's other letters in that it is a professionally written letter. We also know from Romans chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 that it was delivered by a woman by the name of Phoebe who happened to be a wealthy deaconess. She may have even been the one who was charged with reading the letter to the churches. Dr. Keener says that in light of this, from what we know of dictation at that time, it probably took Paul at least about 11 hours to dictate this letter to Tertius, at least for the first draft. Perhaps he reworked it several times to end up exactly with what he wanted to say. 
But there was also a financial component to this based on the papyri and the supplies that were needed, not to mention if Tertius services had to be hired and paid for. In monetary terms of today, Paul spent at least about what would be for us $2,300 to produce this letter to the church in Rome. What do we know about the human author? Paul was born Jewish. In several places in the New Testament, through his letters and acts, we've come to find out that his ancestry, which he is familiar with, is from the tribe of Benjamin in the family of Israel or Jacob. We know that it seems like from what information we have about his upbringing and things that happened to him, that his family seemed to be dedicated to following the commands of the Torah. And most likely because of some things that we pick up in his life, he probably was born into a wealthy family. They were from the, t the city of Tarsus and Cilicia. However, Paul is also born a Roman citizen, which means he has legal rights that not everyone in the empire enjoys, and that comes to play in various places in Acts. His name, that is, he has, it seems he would have three names, being born a Roman citizen. He has a Jewish name, Saul, named after the great and first king of Israel. He has a Latin name, Paul or Paulus, and Paul is perhaps the shortened form of that. And we also find out that Paul is educated abroad. That's one of the things that indicate that most likely his family is wealthy. He's educated not in Tarsus, but in the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And we know that when he became of age and he was able to get involved in the traditions of the fathers and he had been schooled, one of the main tasks that he had in his life in seeking to be zealous for the traditions of the Jews, he persecuted those who were believers in Jesus Christ. We even find him present early in Acts chapter 7 where he is there when Stephen is put to death and he gives his approval for this as they place their coats at his feet. And he stands by saying, yes, I believe this is the right thing to do. But we know that Paul didn't stay as a persecutor of the church because even though he didn't intend it, he wasn't looking for it. Jesus showed up in his life, revealed himself. And it is in Acts chapter nine that we find that Luke recounts how Paul is changed through this dramatic encounter with Christ from a persecutor to an apostle. And then later he retells the story himself in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. And Paul then, with this new commission from God and from the resurrected Christ, goes around the empire spreading this message that the Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Because not everyone was favorable to this news, there was great suffering that Paul endured at the hands of many probably things that none of us would want to suffer in our lives. But despite all the suffering that Paul went through, being beaten, being shipwrecked, not having food or provisions at times, dealing with coldness and being uh, at threat, under threat by those who were out as he traveled, he kept faithfully proclaiming the message about Jesus and anyone who responded to that message who became a believer, he discipled. Because there was something that Paul understood about himself that I think is of benefit for us today. And we find it in the very first, book, first verse of this book or this letter. Let's look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. There are three things that Paul tells us about himself, or at least his understanding of himself and his ministry uh, in this first verse. The first thing he says, if you'll notice there, if you look in the text there, it says that he declares himself to be a servant of Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean when he says that he's a servant of Christ Jesus? Well, at least it meant that he was a fully devoted follower of Jesus, and he was devoted to him as Jesus was his king, and he was devoted to the purposes of God. Paul recognized that he was not his own master. 
we see that Paul finds himself in good company as he is a servant of a special type in the line of some from the Old Testament. We see this title given to certain servants of God. For instance, like Moses, in the book of Joshua chapter 1, we find this written where this title is used of Moses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. We find the same title applied to others. Abraham, Genesis chapter 26, verse 24. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. And Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6. These are special servants of God. And Paul, by having this title on himself, understands himself to be in the line of these unique servants, which means he, like them, bear divine authority in what he speaks. So what Paul writes is not simply just good advice. It's not even great Christian writing that we may find in people like Clement or Tertullian or Augustine or Gregory the Great or Luther or Calvin or Wesley or Barth. His words are altogether different. What he writes is scripture. And notice one other thing about what Paul does here in this title. Notice in the Old Testament it says servant of the Lord. He says here servant of Christ Jesus. He puts Christ Jesus in the place of God and lets us know how he thinks about who Christ Jesus is. Now in a similar way but to a lesser degree, the Apostle Paul saw all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ as servants of the Messiah as well, just like he was. And if you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have faith in the Messiah, then you would fall into this category. Let me show you a couple of passages where Paul conveys that understanding. One comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 to verse 24. Let's look at that together. For he who has called... For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with the price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We see something similar in Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 5 and 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as the Lord, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. See, Paul's understanding for those of us who have faith in Christ is that we are not our own. We're servants of Christ Jesus as well. And that means that we need to, in light of that, live, seek to live lives that, like Paul, were fully devoted to the Messiah. We have to not think of the Lord like a heavenly insurance agent. We all need insurance in our lives because in that way we transfer risk to them. So in some sense, we have a relationship with our insurance agents because they provide to us a certain coverage. But like most of us, probably if we're not buddies with our insurance agent, we only call them or call him or her when there's been a crisis in our lives. Because it's then I want to rely upon the coverage that I have with them. And that's the only time that I listen or hear what they have to say. But the rest of my life, I live it based on my own will and own desires. Paul says there's something going different with the relationship with Jesus Christ. No, no, he, he's not a heavenly insurance agent. No, what he is is the king of your life. And that means as a result that we must live our lives and, and set our desires upon that which he wants for us. See, he died not just to save us, but he also brought us into his kingdom of which he is the king. And so our lives must be ordered by his command and decrees. But there's something else that Paul tells us in the text about himself. The second thing in the text, if you look back at Romans 1, he says something else there. He was called to be 
an apostle. Now, Paul is going to explain this in the verses, but I won't steal the thunder from the pastor who's be speaking next week. So I'll leave that to him to explain the apostleship. What I do want to focus on right now is this idea of being called by God there in the passive, letting us know it's God who is the one who has called him. Now, we can understand the reason why Paul views himself as one who was called by God. He had probably an experience of coming to faith that's different from probably most of ours, right? So he was traveling down the road of Damascus to go and persecute Christians when Jesus shows up, literally, uh, right? And he knocks him off his beast. He ends up blind and uh, ends up getting his sight back. But he ultimately is literally called by Jesus himself. So he views himself as one who has been divinely summoned to the task of being an apostle of God. Now, Paul doesn't view this as something that he deserved. He views it as a work of grace in his life. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. It's not based on his works. Why? Because if we were to consider Paul's resume up to this point, what had he really done? At least as it related to God, persecute his people. That's not necessarily something that would tend to want to make you favorable to God. Hurting his children is not a good idea, right? But God calls him in grace. In a similar way, we have also been called by God, divinely summoned by God. But unlike Paul, we've not been summoned to apostleship. We've been summoned to salvation and to some other things. Like one of the things Paul says is that we might share in the glory of Christ. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And I'm going to walk you through some scriptures to show you how our calling is different than Paul's, but nevertheless, we have been called as well. Here, one of the first texts we find is this one. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers, of the, by the, beloved, sorry, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So different than Paul, where he had this specific, unique encounter with Jesus, Paul says that God summons you through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was in that message that God summoned you. What did he summon you to? Well, one of the things that he summoned you to was that you might live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called and to fellow the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God summoned you to be in relationship with Christ and by way of Christ in relationship to be with his people the church. And this calling by which God called you is referred to as a holy calling. Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight and nine. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This means that what God has called us to, because it is a holy calling, he has called us to live holy lives. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. In the community group that I'm a part of that we meet on Thursday nights via Zoom currently, we've been studying this book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. And we've learned a variety of things through our study of the chapters up to this far. We've learned that the aspect of holiness, most likely that the text is focusing on for us in this aspect, revolves around the idea of moral Purity. We've also learned that God has uh, given us some personal responsibility as it deals with the pursuit of holiness because he has provided certain resources to enable us to make this pursuit effective. And we see commands in scripture like put to death. 
throw off, make every effort, resist and submit that indicate that God expects that there is some personal responsibility or human responsibility that God has for us in this endeavor of pursuing holiness. Now, when I was in high school, I took a chemistry class, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. For some of you, you love chemistry, and I praise God that God has given you that ability. We thank God for you. It was a class, and on this particular occasion, we had a test coming up that was a very difficult test. And on this occasion, I decided to study. Not that I always did that. But on this occasion, I decided to study, knowing how difficult it was. Uh, right before the test happened, a friend of mine, a, a close friend of mine at the time, who happened to be a young lady at school, uh, came to me before the test, and she had not studied for the test. She knew that I had studied for the test, and so she begged me before the test if I would allow her to copy off because of all of her extracurricular activities in school, like band, cheerleading. She had a bunch of stuff going on in her life, and for whatever reason, she didn't study. And that day, I felt pity for her, and I decided that I would let her cheat off my paper. So we started to take the test, and she happened to be sitting, and the teacher had us separated kind of like how we are now to some degree. There was a seat and a space and a seat. And so I just kind of slid my paper over as I did my work and she could see it. And the teacher was, you know, doing the proctor thing and walking around the class watching to make sure no one was cheating and we weren't caught. We submitted our papers and turned them in and we walked out. Whoo! Got through that one. A few days passed. We returned to chemistry class and sat through chemistry class thinking everything was okay. Teacher talked to the class, and at the end of the class, the teacher said, can I see the two of you alone after class? So everybody left, and we knew something was wrong. She started off with a series of questions like Jesus would do when he already knew the answer. <laughs> can you explain this to me? To which my friend, of course, immediately started to cover and was just, just, just confessed everything. Hey, listen, I was the one who asked. I was the one who copied. I didn't study. Just give me the zero and all of that. And, uh, and the professor, didn't seem, she didn't seem to have that kind of thought about it. She turned her attention from my friend to me. She looked me straight in the eyes. She said, you know what? This is really sad. She said, because you actually made the highest grade in the class on this test. You did better than anyone else in the class who took this test. But because you decided to cheat, because you wanted to help her, I'm going to allow you to help her. So what I'm going to do, because you wanted to help her, I'm going to give her half of your grade, and you can keep the other half. <laughs> so what ended up happening is we both ended up failing the test. So we thought we had got away that day, but when the time of judgment came, we found out that we had not gotten away as we thought we had. Today, you may be sitting in this room, and I don't know what's going on in your personal life, but there may be some secret sin in your life, and only you and God know it. You're sitting here. You know about it. You're listening to me. And what I'm telling you today is now is your time to repent and forsake that sin. Because one of the things that I found out that has just been a repeated example over the years is this. If you don't deal with it, it's going to come out whether you want to or not because you don't rule the universe. God does. And at some point, the only reason he's being patient right now is giving you an opportunity so that you can deal with it. But if you don't deal with it, he will deal with it. Listen to what Proverbs say. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. You want mercy? Confess and forsake. Don't let it keep happening in your life because God calls you to be holy. God calls you not only to be holy, but he calls you to live in peace and to be thankful. Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. God also called you to live a life that is worthy of you being called a child of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul writes, I, 
Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this calling to live a life worthy of being called to salvation, to be in relationship with the Son, includes good works. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we also always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only question I have for you today is this. Are you living according to the calling that you have received from God? You've been divinely summoned, but are you living like you've been divinely summoned? Finally, Paul tells us the third thing about himself, and we'll close up with this, that he was, in verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we see this idea of being set apart is not a new concept. It's an Old Testament concept because Paul doesn't see himself as a new religion, as fulfillment of what God had promised in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, we see God saying this about his people. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, scholar Dr. Moose says that most likely what Paul is doing here is giving us another way to expand his understanding of what it meant for him to be called to be an apostle. He was set apart for God's purpose. In Paul's specific life was to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. Now, there are two things that Paul understands about his calling or his being set apart in this case. One, that he stands in the, lands, in the line of the prophets uh, in a sense. Notice what the scripture says about this prophetic calling. One example we have is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is God speaking to Jeremiah, who feels unqualified to fulfill this role. He says to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What God says to Jeremiah is, hey, you may not feel qualified, but don't worry. I already worked this out even before you were born. I knew you and I chose you, and I consecrated you, this is where your life is going because I made that choice for your life. In a similar way, Paul seems to understand himself and his consecration, his life, in a similar fashion. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul seems to understand himself in a way of a prophet in that same line that like the prophets before him, he himself had been consecrated, chosen by God before he was born for this purpose. And that's the reason that God called him to be an apostle. He was like Jeremiah. He was like John the Baptist. The second thing that Paul understood was this, that his mission from God was a priestly service. We see this later in the book of Romans, chapter 15. We'll see it up on the text there. They'll put it up for you on the screen. Paul writes, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
In a similar way, not exactly the same as Paul, called as God has called us to be saints. If I were to reinterpret that word, holy ones, what does that mean? To be set apart ones for the purposes and priestly service of God. Throughout the writings of the New Testament, Peter, and we see in Revelations where what Christ did for us made us into priests. Paul indicates this by telling us this when he says this, that call, God called us to be saints. First Corinthians again, chapter 1, but we see a verse earlier in verses 2. Uh, in verse 2 of verse 3. To the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul says that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then God has called you to be a holy one, a set-apart one, a saint. And the question becomes because Paul understood that he had been set apart before he was born for the purpose of being an apostle and to serve God. He says, you've been also called to be a saint, one who is set apart because he lived his life that way. The question then becomes for us after looking at Paul's life, are we living our lives as those who understand that we have been set apart for the purposes of God? How does the way you use your time indicate to others that you recognize that you've been set apart for God? How, do we, how does the way that your words are used and you uh, govern them show that you understand that you are in the priestly service of God? How does the use of the resources, whatever they might be in your life, indicate that you recognize that there's a difference between you and those who do not know God? How is your handling of relationships indicate that you are a, are a set apart one, one who belongs not to yourself, but belongs to God? How does what you watch either on your phone or on your TV or whatever device you decide to use indicate that you recognize that your life is not your own? It belongs solely to God. You may not think about yourself this way, but the reality is you are a priest whether you choose to live like one or not, you still are because Christ died to make you one. And Peter applies that Old Testament language of Israel to you as a, one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You're a kingdom of priests to God. That means you've been called out from society to belong to God and to serve his purposes. Now, as we'll see in the coming months, Paul lays out his solution for us on this idea of what is to bring unity in the church. And it's based on God's plan of salvation and how, by grace, both Jews and Gentiles fit into that plan. And what he says to the church is you have to remember that you are in salvation because of God's grace that has come to you through Jesus Christ, and you need to live your life based on that truth, and that ought to come out in how you relate to other people and the society around you. And if the believers would do that, Paul believed that that would help to resolve the conflicts that they were experiencing in the church. At the beginning of this message, I told you that there was a very old church split that consistently exists until today. I also told you that there was a committee between Orthodox and Catholic priests who were working together to try to resolve this age-old dispute. In that article, the right went on after reviewing the Bible, doing scriptural analysis, uh, doing theological reflections, going over some of the historical considerations to offer a few suggestions. One was this. All involved in such dialogue expressly recognize the limitations of our ability to make definitive assertions about the inner life of God. What he says is that we come to these issues, there is some reality that God is greater and more mysterious than what we know, and we may never fully understand God. So we need to have some humility as we deal with one another about what we assert about God's nature. In the final paragraph, he said this, we offer these recommendations to our churches in the conviction based on our own intense study and discussion that our traditions, different ways of understanding the procession of the Holy Spirit need no longer divide us. He's seeking peace. 
And the reason I share this with you because I want to say that I believe this is an illustration of one of the effects that the gospel should produce in our lives. When we see ourselves as we truly are, for those who've responded to the message about Jesus and have come into relationship with him by repentance and faith, recognizing that we have been divinely summoned by God and set apart for his purposes to claim the message about Jesus and to live out the gospel of Jesus. One of the ways we live that gospel out is by seeking peace with others as best as it depends on us. Brothers and sisters, I welcome you to the book of Romans. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for what you by your spirit spoke through Paul, a human author that you selected for this very purpose before he was even born. And though at one time, Lord, his life was going totally astray, not because of any works that he had done, but because of your grace, because you had already made choice of him, that you called him so that we could have this letter in our hands today that men and women have reflected on for thousands of years grapple with what he said and still today we grapple with it trying to understand it as best we can we pray Father, as we begin this journey through the book of romans that you would help us we want to know what you intended for us to understand from what was written and preserved and kept for us Paul most likely didn't know that we would exist but he's not God you are you knew when the words were being penned and you kept it for our benefit may Lord your intentions be seen in our lives that the truth of what is presented in this letter written so long ago may bring the desired change in our lives so that we might be consistent with living in the direction that is appropriate for those who are your children. We want to live lives worthy, but we dare not think that that will be accomplished in our strength. Help us. We pray in Jesus' holy, mighty, and great name.